Welcome to a special edition of the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 468. As many of you are now aware, Sumner Redstone, the media mogul who built his family's drive-in theater chain into a multi-million dollar empire encompassing CBS and Viacom and MTV, and later became the center of a jilted lover's lawsuit that nearly cost his family his financial legacy, has died. He was 97. Today's interview, which is previously recorded, is with author Keech Hagee, who has written the wonderful book, King of Content, about Sumner Redstone. Keech Hagee is a byline staff writer with the Wall Street Journal, where she reports on media, and Keech Hagee has written this fantastic book about Sumner Redstone and the remarkable story of his life, his family, his legacy, and the battles for all he controlled. I thought you'd enjoy some background on Sumner Redstone today, his remarkable life, his business career and family. And so I've added some audio, high quality fidelity to the sound file, and I'm replaying it here now for you in its entirety. Please enjoy. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm your host, Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 242. As part of our Art of Living author interview series, our guest today on the Not Old Better Show is Keech Hagee. Keech Hagee is a bylined staff writer with the Wall Street Journal where she reports on media. And Keech Hagee has written a new book about the remarkable story of Sumner Redstone, his family legacy, and the battles for all he controls. The title of the book, The King of Content from Keech Hagee, is about Sumner Redstone, who lived by the credo, content is king. Redstone leveraged his father's chain of drive-in movie theaters into one of the world's greatest media empires through a series of audacious takeovers designed to ensure his permanent control. Over the course of this meteoric rise, he made his share of enemies and feuded with nearly every member of his family. Today, the 95-year-old mogul's life has become a tabloid soap opera, the center of acrimonious legal battles throughout his vast holdings, which include Paramount Pictures, and two of the largest public media companies, Viacom and CBS. At the heart of these lawsuits is Redstone's tumultuous love life and complicated relationship with his children. Redstone's daughter, Sherry, has emerged as his de facto successor, but only after she ousted his closest confidant in a fierce power struggle. A biography and corporate whodunit filled with surprising details, the king of content investigates Redstone's impact on business and popular culture, as well as the family feuds, corporate battles, and questionable alliances that go back decades, all laid bare in Keech Hagee's authoritative book. So please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, author Keech Hagee. Keech Hagee, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I have to tell you, uh, after reading your excellent book, um, The King of Content, you know, what I didn't know about this man, <laughs> Sumner Redstone, it, you know, he's, he's a bad guy, almost despicable, not the best father, you know, but a brilliant lawyer, a photographic mind, able to relate to the creative industry in, in a very unique way. Tell us briefly about Sumner Redstone and what was your most surprising fact that you learned about him? Sumner Redstone is the last of the, or one of the last of the great media moguls. And he started his life um, as a lawyer, but 
spent a whole career as just a regional drive-in and an indoor movie theater executive working for his family chain of movie theaters. And then around the time that most people would be retiring, he decided to do a hostile takeover of Viacom, which was at the time of sort of a rising cable company. And he proceeded to gobble up a bunch of other companies, Paramount, CBS, in what at the time was the largest media deal ever in U.S. history. And he turned himself into uh, the king of a sprawling $40 billion empire. And it's just a fascinating title, too, the king of content, because we all hear this phrase, content is king. This is the man that coined this phrase, content is king. And I, I just think that's there's there's so much that I really didn't know about him, as I say. And you mentioned this, too. You think that we're kind of in the final days of some of this uh, uh, you know, last of the great media moguls. But yet there's Google, there's Facebook. Apple is very much in the content game today. What is it about Murdoch that makes him special in telling his story today, kind of at the end of this? It's not really his end yet. He's still living. Um, yes. Sumner Redstone is still living. He's 95 years old. And his idea that content is king, this is his catchphrase that he started repeating mm-hmm. in the 90s. It came about because at that time, there was a hot debate between really what was king? Is it distribution or content? And John Malone, the cable cowboy, was very, very powerful at the time, um, the largest cable operator in the country uh, with TCI. And everyone in media was terrified of him. And Sumner's point of saying, you know, content is king is don't be scared of this guy. Yes, he can tell whether a cable channel is going to live or die because he's the guy who determines whether it gets on the biggest cable system. But ultimately, if you own intellectual property, you always have the upper hand in negotiations. And that's really proved true. And just now, as, as you mentioned, we're seeing these tech behemoths realizing that in order to grow, in order to make people want to buy their phones and their devices and their services, they're going to need to get into content too. And the book really talks an awful lot about this uh, this content. Most Most creatives wouldn't necessarily want to use that term content, but Redstone related very well to the creative community. And Philippe Doman, you, you make a very a, a point of saying that Philippe Doman, kind of his second uh, in, in command in, in many ways over the years, he had to visit, uh, you know, and I use that term in, in quotes almost, he didn't necessarily have a close connection with the talent and Moonves and Redstone and other studio heads are paid like talent. It was really Redstone who had these instincts, really almost in his blood, maybe from his father. So tell us a little bit about Redstone's instincts in terms of uh, content and creativity. Well, he grew up going to his father's movie theaters, which were drive-in theaters in the early days, loved the movies, really um, loved them like a fan. And that was something that he never really let go of. Even during World War II, when he was in the army, he helped crack some Japanese codes. But in the final years, of uh, final months of being in the army, he was booking acts for uh, for the army for for soldiers. So he he always had this sort of showbiz in his blood, and he had great taste in content. Um, during the seventies, when he was beginning to do some investing. One of the great things about being the head of a theater chain is you get to see the movies before other people. So he would see Star Wars ahead of the release date and then walk across the street, use the payphone, and buy Fox stock. Because back then the studios were independent 
public companies by and large. And that's how he made a killing. That's how he actually was able to get Viacom because he made all these amazing investments on, on uh, public studios. And he was just a person who loved hanging out with Hollywood types. So he had had his eye on Paramount Pictures, the storied movie studio, pretty much his whole life. He was the guy in the movie theater ch- chain who would be negotiating with the film distributors. So he'd be the one to say, you know, I want this film, but not this film. Give me this film for the, for the holidays. So we got to know all of those people and form deep relationships in Hollywood. And when it came time for him to actually make a play and buy Paramount, I think that understanding really served him well. He was able to see the value in the long-term value in a piece of content, meaning a movie or a TV show. And he saw it as something that was going to increase in value over time. You know, it wasn't just a cost that you released out into the world and tried to recoup over a few years. These were things that were almost eternal. You know, this intellectual property could only grow in value over time. And that allowed him to make big bets that other people maybe would not have made. We're with Kichegi. Kichegi has written the book, The King of Content. Kichegi is a uh, columnist and uh, writer byline for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, as I say, Kichegi, I, I loved this book. And I think many of my audience will remember those days in 1987 and the purchase of Viacom. And he was – Subta Redstone was known as this uh, very insightful, brilliant man. But he was also known as somebody who used – litigation as a business tool. So talk a little bit about that. Is that is that a true assessment of him? Absolutely. So he was a lawyer and he did work at the Justice Department in the early part of his career. Um, in the anti he was there actually when the Justice Department's antitrust division was breaking up the, the big studios, um, breaking up the sort of old Hollywood system and forcing studios to no longer own movie theaters. And I think that experience was extremely formative for him because it showed him the power of antitrust litigation in particular in the movie business. And it was so fascinating for me to actually to research this you know, sort of year by year and see just how many antitrust lawsuits there were in the exhibition business, which was in movie theaters, mm. for decades throughout you know the entire middle of the 20th century. These people were constantly suing each other um, for accusing each other of monopolistic practices. And he was the best of all of them. And throughout the whole 20th century, he would use the tool of specifically the antitrust lawsuit to win business arguments. And you know, very, very often he would settle in the end and he would get his way. Uh, and that was how he got the studios to give his theater chain first run movies back when they were still kind of regarded as a mostly drive-in chain. And, you know, drive-ins usually get stuff that's six months old or a year old. But, um, you know, he used antitrust litigation to, to pressure them into giving him first run movies. And we, then he took that playbook and he used it on a global stage once he really became a media mogul. During the Paramount battle, he did litigation to threaten John Malone, and he worked all the regulators down in D.C., and that was a really key part of him winning that battle. The other story uh, certainly is Redstone's health. He seems to be uh, you know, present today, maybe a looming presence. But one of the interesting stories, and, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but I just found it just almost hilarious that he is even communicating today with an iPad with about three answers on that iPad. And so I, I wonder if you'd talk about that. He, the guy is a survivor. He hung outside a hotel room 
by his fingertips to survive and live uh, uh, and survive a fire, but he he's definitely hanging on. But I'm I'm curious: uh, is it true that he still uses this iPad with these three answers to communicate along with grunts? Yes. So he can no longer speak, which is very tragic for someone like mm-hmm. him who had this, mm-hmm. this silver tongue and he was a great orator, um, and words were always so important to him. Uh, he lost the ability to speak about three years ago after a series of incidents where he basically got aspirational pneumonia, he swallowed food. Um, And after that, he really could only speak in grunts or someone described it as like he had a very thick Cajun accent. But since then, it's gotten worse. Um, And so they solved this problem by loading his tablet with little snippets of his past speeches back when he could speak. And the three most commonly used buttons are yes, no, and (laughs) F-U. Which, which I feel like proves that, you know, it's really Sumner in there because yeah. F.U. was definitely his favorite thing to say. <laughs> he is just a character, certainly. And his daughter, Sherry, is also a character. And I think she comes off in the book as one of the better characters. She's got she's got a good story to tell. She's had some haters along the way. She's overcome some doubt. Why was it important uh, to you to tell her story along with Sumner's? Well, I set out to tell a multi-generational story, um, really as much about Sumner's father, who really built National Amusements, the company that controls CBS and Viacom, Sumner, and then Sherry, who is now in charge, and you know, even looking forward to her children a little bit. And for me, the Sherry story is so important, a little bit because people really don't know her. Um, you know, Sumner couldn't get enough of talking to reporters. <laughs> Sherry is not that way. Uh, she's she's um, really a very private person. And so people misunderstand her, I think, a lot. And um, a lot of the people that were around Sumner uh, often were the ones who shaped the narrative about her. So Sumner's advisors didn't like Sherry for, for the most part. Um, you know, they didn't think that she was competent to to take over. And that's, of course, kind of a self-interested view because some of those closest advisors were going to be the ones running the show instead if some of Sumner's original planning had really been put in place. Uh, I think that she's important because she's going to be the one that controls this empire. And, you know, uh, as I've written, she really is the most important female media owner we've ever had Mm -hmm. in the United States. Catherine Graham was a very important female media Mm -hmm. owner, but what Mm -hmm. she controlled was a fraction of the size of this empire, the CBS and Viacom empire. So just for pure historical reasons, um, I think she's a very significant figure. Last question for you, uh, Kichegi. So let's jump ahead a little bit to today then. Uh, There's uh, certainly talk about Viacom and CBS being combined once again. Um, That brings with it an awful lot of uh, uh, potential for battle. Maybe some some fight is really even going on today between Sherry Redstone and Les Moonvins. Where do you think this is going to end up? Give us a little bit of a prognostication with your uh, Wall Street Journal (laughs) reporter hat on. Sure. So right now, these two sides are locked in uh, litigation. There's a trial set in October in Delaware. And my view, and I'm not a lawyer, but my view is that it would be extraordinary for a Delaware court to rule to strip a controlling shareholder of that control. I mean, that would really be unprecedented. And that's essentially what CBS is asking the court to do. Um, 
you know, they say there's something in the charter that says that they can do this. Um, and of course, the other side interprets it differently. But if if a Delaware court really does decide, decide with CBS and strip the Redstones of control of CBS, I think that that will have ripples throughout the entire, not just media, but technology industry, where so many of the major companies have the same structure, the two-tiered stock structure, just like News Corp, my employer, mm-hmm. just like Google, just like Facebook. So it would be extraordinary if, if that's the way that it went. Keith Hagee, author of the book, The King of Content. This is just a fabulous story. In a lot of ways, uh, soap opera, my audience will certainly remember I Want My MTV. All of these great things are in this book. It's a book that people should read. But Keith Hagee, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. My thanks to our guest today. And please check out our website at notold-better.com for more information and conversation. And thanks to all of you, my wonderful audience, for your charming, encouraging, and advice-driven emails with show and topic suggestions. Please keep them coming at info at notold-better.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at notoldbetter. And you can find us on Facebook as well. We are Not Old Better there on Facebook. Podcasts of the Not Old Better show are available on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Also on Amazon's Alexa. How are you today, Alexa? I'm doing great. Alexa, play the Not Old Better podcast. Getting the latest episode of the Not Old Better show. Here it is from TuneIn. You can always find us online at notold-better.com where you can find all of our archives. You can share a link, you can get in touch, and I look forward to hearing from you. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and please, everyone, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.